Good morning as well, brothers and sisters. Glad that you are here today. As you heard Tim talk to the Lord, uh, he mentioned that we're going to be discussing Satan in the next few minutes. And this is week two of our Supernatural series. As we look at the unseen, what's beyond the reality of our lives, but is reality. It actually exists. It's not just a fairy tale. I love that this Anne of Green Gables staging is up right now because I feel like it's so appropriate to talk about Satan when we have an Anne of Green Gables stage up. And the reason for that is that's just our beautiful mess of our lives, isn't it? We create beautiful art and plays and and nice happy things like Anne Shirley. And yet we also know that beyond the reality of the things that we create that are beautiful and artistic lies darkness and evil and something that wants to destroy us. It's called the beautiful mess. It's kind of the world that we live in as followers of Jesus here in 2015. But I think it's appropriate to have both as visuals for today. C.S. Lewis talks about Satan. C.S. Lewis is the author of the Chronicles of Narnia series that's now been turned into a series of movies. C.S. Lewis in another book, The Screwtape Letters, says, you know, we really have two temptations when it comes to Satan. We have two extremes that we as people often go to. The first extreme is to believe that Satan is behind every corner and, and underneath every rock. My friend Shane DeLisi, many of you know Shane, he was a pastor here for several years. He was eating one day on a, at a, a fast food place off of Chapman Avenue. And he's sitting there outside at this fast food place in Orange. And this car pulls up to the drive through speaker and he can hear this exchange. He hears the guy in the car say, I'd like an apple pie. And then the drive through attendant responds, I'm sorry, sir, we're out of apple pie. He goes, you said that yesterday. I want an apple pie. And the tenant goes, I'm sorry, sir, we do not have apple pie. He goes, I'm coming around. So he screeches his car around to the drive through window and he goes, I am so tired of this place not having apple pie when I come here for apple pie. And Shane's listening to all of this. The drive through attendant screams back at the guy, you need to get out of my face right now. And they start getting into it, cussing each other out. Shane's telling me this. The drive through attendant with his little walkie-talkie on leaves his booth, walks out of the fast food restaurant and challenges this guy to a fight on Chapman Avenue here in Orange. The guy in the car, totally up for it, gets out of the car and they're about to go to blows over a apple pie. And if you knew what fast food restaurant this was, you would, why? Um, Shane gets in the middle and breaks him up and calms the driver down and he gets in his car and then he takes off. And then the drive-thru attendant looks at Shane and goes, wow, that, that was Satan right there. <laughs> Shane tells me this story and I don't know, maybe it's possible that Satan showed up on Chapman Avenue in Orange to get an apple pie from a fast food restaurant. I mean, it's very possible But that's one extreme to say Satan's around every corner and underneath every rock. You've heard the saying, the devil made me do it, right? It's to blame everything on Satan. But then the other extreme is this, is to make Satan a joke. To really not even acknowledge that Satan is real and that there's a real battle going on in our world. And that's one of the burdens that we have for this sermon series over the next few weeks is to remind you, not scare you, 
but remind you that there is a real life unseen battle taking place every single day in our lives. But for many, the opposite extreme as C.S. Lewis talks about, it's just, it's a joke. It's, it's not real. And so you have people mimic Satan. They have little pitchforks and tails. And um, I came across this picture. This is the weirdest thing ever. This is a Halloween costume for a baby. Like, what parent, and I'm not judging you if you're in this category, but what parent wakes up one day in October and goes, you know what I'm going to dress my little baby up to for Halloween? I'm going to dress him up as Satan. <laughs> like, who does that? Uh, this morning I was eating breakfast with my three-year-old, and I'm looking over my PowerPoint slides in preparation for this moment, and he sees this slide, and he goes, Dad, is that me? And I'm like, no, no, it's, it's not. I would never do that to you, Seth. Like, don't worry. Like, you are not Satan. Uh, and so we moved on quickly from there. But so one extreme C.S. Lewis talks about is Satan's everywhere. And then the other extreme is he's nowhere. What's the balanced approach? Uh, the scriptures say a lot about this. And one of my favorite scriptures is 1 Peter chapter 5. The whole thing, really. But 8 and 9 in particular. I'm actually going to have you turn to the Old Testament in just a moment. So don't turn in your Bibles yet. I'd like you just to see if you, can you see that from the Anna Green Gables set? Can you see the screen? Okay. Um, what I'd like us to do is just say this scripture out loud together. You can look at the screen. Let's say this together as the, the baseline for what we're talking about today. So repeat with me, not after me, but with me. Do you get it? Is your coffee kicked in yet? Are you okay? Okay, let's repeat this together. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Isn't that good? There's a warning here. It says, be sober. There's an adversary, a real-life adversary, that prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And there's a challenge. It says, be firm. And there's encouragement knowing that there's other people that are also experiencing the real-life battle with an enemy, the devil. This is our baseline for today. You have your sermon notes that you received a little booklet, bulletin when you walked in. If you want to pull those out, you can. That could help you go through some of these passages or, or even look them up later if you so will. Take those out. We'll follow along with that. And I want to point us now to two great Old Testament passages. The first one comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 14. The next one is from Ezekiel, chapter 28. I'd like you, if you somehow can, turn to both. Maybe you put a finger in one. Slip a piece of paper in the other. Ezekiel is, I mean, Isaiah is about maybe a third of the way through the Bible that you have. If you have a blue Bible in the seat rack, you can pull that out. But open up and you find Isaiah chapter 14. And then about three books later, you run into the book of Ezekiel and go to Ezekiel chapter 28. We see in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, we say this, hear this comment about Satan. It said, but you said in your heart, and this is Satan now speaking, 
I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Isaiah 14, 13. Isaiah the prophet is writing this Old Testament book. If you look at the context of the chapter, he's speaking about the king of Babylon. He's referring to the king of Babylon, a real-life person who was an evil, evil character. But halfway through Isaiah 14, the prophet now looks over the shoulder of the king of Babylon and points to who is behind this evil king, which is Satan. Which a little side note of that is that we see here a precedence that Satan often influences rulers and leaders and nations, just like he did here in the king of Babylon. So Isaiah looks behind the king and says, here's who's really in charge. And he just starts describing Satan right here. Look at verse 11 of Isaiah 14. It says, your pomp and the music of your harps has been brought down to Sheol. Just this little line tucked here in chapter 14 gives us a a bit of an indication about who Satan is. He was musically gifted before he fell. Before he rebelled against God, he was in the presence of God. Do you understand that? That at one time, Satan being a created being was a worship leader, perhaps, in heaven, exalting the name of God. If you put your finger in Isaiah 14 and then flip over to Ezekiel chapter 28, now you see the prophet Ezekiel talking about another king, King Tyre. And again, Ezekiel looks beyond this king and looks who's behind him, which is Satan. And he talks about Satan in Ezekiel 28, 12, when he says, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So Satan, before he rebelled against God, was potentially a worship leader in heaven. He was full of wisdom. He was beautiful. And Ezekiel 28 goes on in verse 14 to say, You were an anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. Satan at this time, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before or understood this, had fellowship with God. He was in the presence of the holy God, worship leader, pointing others to God. He was beautiful. He was wise. He was talented. Kind of reminds me of our two worship pastors, Ron Rogowski and Victor Estrada. Beautiful, wise, musically gifted. I had this weird tangent a couple days ago, and I went on one of those morph websites where you can morph human beings, you know, and faces, and I decided, what would it look like if we had a worship leader named Ron Estrada or Victor Rogowski? This is what it would look like. That's what our worship leader <laughs> would look like. But that has nothing to do with anything. Um, the point is that Ron and Victor are the opposite of Satan as far as these guys walk in humility. I love even Victor just now. I forget that he's leading us, and I'm just connecting with God. And what a gift it is when people are gifted musically or in other realms, but they fade out of the picture and just connect you and point you to Jesus Christ. Satan was the opposite. 
Satan's pride led to his rebellion. Go back in your Bibles again. We're kind of turning back and forth. Isaiah 14, 14. We read a really sad statement. This is Satan talking. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is Satan, totally gifted by God, pointing others to God, fellowship with God. And he says, you know what? I can do his job. Let me step in. Ezekiel 28, back to that, in verse 17. It says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. Satan begins to buy his own press clippings, if you will. He begins to think to himself, wow, I'm so gifted and talented and God has given me so much. Why am I using it simply to point the glory to God? Why can't I receive some of this glory? Here we see that Satan and the angels in this time with God had free will. They had the opportunity to rebel. And Satan... In his pride, sadly, sadly, does this. And God can't have sin near him. God is completely holy. And so you go back to Isaiah chapter 14, and you read this. Nevertheless, you'll be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. So the court trial, the judge jury for Satan was very swift. He tries to rise up to to match God and his glory. And God says, there will be no rival for my glory. And he cast Satan away. Back to Ezekiel 28. It says, by the abundance of your trade, you were eternally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. This is our adversary. The one who is hostile towards God. The one who had the audacity to think that he could somehow rival God. He began worshiping the gifts that God gave him rather than the giver of those gifts. Brothers and sisters, this is our temptation too, isn't it? To worship the gifts that God gives us over the giver. We have been blessed with so much So many gifts in this room, spiritual gifts, the Bible talks about that every believer has. These spiritual gifts are used to strengthen and to build up the church. And yet we use our gifts and we bypass the giver and we begin to worship the gifts. This was Satan's sin. This is what led to his rebellion. Okay, take your fingers out of Isaiah and Ezekiel, and now go to the last book in the Bible, to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. We see that Satan is hostile towards God, and that's clearly seen in Satan's hostility towards Jesus. Look at Revelation, chapter 12. Begin in verse 3 of Revelation 12. It says, then another sign appeared in heaven. I'm here in Revelation 12, 3. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. 
And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And there's a little bit of a caricature of, of what Satan looks like, but when you look at this passage, you get the idea of where the horns come from and, and the tail and often how Satan's depicted as being red. You're in this passage in Revelation 12, the red dragon with a tail and, and horns. And look what this red dragon, oh, it says here that he swept a third of the stars away. Potentially, this could indicate that a third of the angels in heaven went with Satan. Now, we know in other parts of Scripture that the number of angels is too much for us to count. And so a third of the angels went with Satan out of heaven, or fallen angels, now what we call demons that roam the earth. Next week, we'll get more into that as we talk more about demons and, and, and the Christian. But understand that Satan now takes a third with him, and they wage war on Jesus. Verse 4 continues of Revelation 12, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. Often when we look at the manger scene at Christmas, we picture this tranquil, peaceful scene where all of us are gathered around the manger singing, Silent night, oh... Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> but it's peaceful, right? It wasn't such a silent night, though, when you look at Revelation 12. There was a war going on behind the scenes as Satan himself wages war on the baby. But luckily, God is bigger than Satan. And Jesus was born into this world for sinners such as you and I. He lived in this world. He lived 30 years, and then his earthly ministry began after a preparation of 30 years. We read Satan now appears to him again. In Luke 4, you see the temptation of Jesus Christ. He's just been baptized Publicly proclaimed, the Father and the Spirit and Jesus the Son all together, the high point of his earthly life, and then he's led out into the desert for 40 days. And Satan throws everything he can at Jesus. Satan does something really interesting. He'll do this to us too. He distorts scripture. He uses a little bit of truth, but then distorts it. And yet Jesus is strong. And Jesus responds to Satan's lies every single time with truth from the Father. And Jesus overcomes the temptation that he experiences in the wilderness with Satan. And then in Luke chapter 4 verse 13, it says, When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So Satan, in a sense, gives up at this point. He gave everything he could at the incarnation, at the birth. He throws everything he can at Jesus in the wilderness. And then it says he leaves. Even a little theology here of Satan in this moment and in this passage is that Satan is not omnipresent. Satan leaves Jesus physically and he goes somewhere else. Only God is omnipresent, all present, everywhere. In 1 Peter 5 it says that Satan, the devil, prowls around in job it talks about that he wanders the earth but get this satan can't be everywhere at all times 
And maybe that's something that you've kind of grown up thinking that like, oh, Satan's everywhere. Again, around that corner, around that rock at the drive-thru on Chapman Avenue. But Satan has limitations. Amen? He does. The scriptures tell us that. He leaves Jesus right here. And he waits for an opportune time. One of those opportune times comes through an unlikely source. It's one of Jesus' own followers, Peter. Peter rebukes Jesus as they lead up to Passion Week, to the cross. And Jesus looks at Peter, and I pray that Jesus would never say this about any of us. Jesus looks at Peter, and he says this, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So again, Satan throws everything he can at Jesus, even through one of his own followers, influencing him. So Satan is hostile towards God. Satan is hostile specifically towards Jesus. And as people who are born into the image of God, the object of God's affections, the reason and purpose that Jesus entered our world, it just makes sense that Satan also is hostile towards us. That we experience the wrath of the devil. Jesus, describing Satan in John chapter 8, verse 44, says Satan is a liar. He is the father of lies. If you look in the original language in this line, Jesus is basically saying Satan is the inventor, the origin of lies. We see that in our lives, huh? Even as he tempted Jesus, Satan mixed in a little truth, but then covered it in a lie. That's what he does. One of the best ways that he lies to us is by speaking to our pride, letting us fall into temptation and sin, and then drowning us in pity. You see this in Genesis chapter 3. Satan approaches Eve and then through Eve to Adam and says, Did God really say this? Do you know that God's holding out on you? You could be like God. He lies to Eve and to Adam, and they buy into it. And the fall of humanity takes place in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And then, interestingly enough, after man falls, humanity is now tainted by sin. Now Satan shows up and accuses them and drowns them in pity and says, Look at you. How could you do this? What a shameful person you are. And Adam and Eve hide from God, remember? They cover themselves and hide in the garden from God because of their shame. This is how Satan works with you and I too. His tactics are the same as they were in the garden. It's to appeal to your pride. Don't you deserve this? You've been so good. You've been overlooked. No one's paying attention to you. You need this. This would bless you. This would be a gift to you. This would make your life better. And the pride that we all live with wakes up. Goes, yeah, that, that's true. And so we fall into the temptation. We fall headfirst into sin. And then as we experience sin in our lives, then shame comes as Satan uses the lie of shame and says, look at you. You didn't just fall one time. This is just who you are. You are so messed up. You will never be the type of person that God would accept. You are a shameful human being. This is what he does to me. 
This is what he does to you. It's his common tactic. Pride and pity. This is how he wages war against us. Interestingly enough, as you look through the scriptures too, Satan, as he attacks us, has to ask permission from God. In Job, you see Satan noticing Job and saying, this guy is a righteous man. He actually lives out what he believes. And so Satan shows up before God and says, have you considered your servant Job? He only follows you because you give him things. If you take anything away from him, he will no longer follow you. But Satan has to ask God for permission to attack Job. In the New Testament, Jesus again interacting with Peter says, Peter, be on watch, be on guard, because Satan has asked permission to sift you, to examine you, to test you. And so we know, as we even think through this idea, is that Satan is not in control. Satan must go to the one who is in control, the sovereign one who is God, in order to accomplish anything in this world. You must understand that in this battle is that there is one who is in control, and it is God, not Satan. But again, going back to 1 Peter, this idea that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for people to devour. This is our reality. In our Anne of Green Gables world, this is the backdrop. Satan's looking to take somebody out. He's looking to take all of us out. If you just do a brief study from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you see this. In fact, if you have your sermon notes, just turn on the back side. It's like four-point font, and this room's a little dark, but do your best. From Genesis to Revelation, you see Satan's hostility towards us. And in 60 seconds... I want to just cover this with you so you understand this, and I understand it, how deep this hostility is. So give me 60 seconds. Here we go. In Genesis 3, Satan disguises himself as a serpent. In Isaiah 14, he is Lucifer, son of the morning fall. In Chronicles 21.1, Satan energized David to evil. In Job 1 and 2, Satan accused and afflicted Job. In the New Testament, in Matthew 4.3, Satan is the tempter. In Matthew 4, 4, and then in Luke 4, he perverts the word of God. In Matthew 12 and in Acts 10, Satan is the prince of demons. In Matthew 13, he snatches away the, God, the, away the word. Also, he sows the tares. He is considered the evil one. He, Satan, is the enemy. In Matthew 25, 11, he sends out false prophets. In Matthew 25, 41, he is a fallen angel. In Luke 4.13, he is the devil, the slanderer. In John 8.44, Satan is a murderer. In John 12.31 and in chapter 14, he is the prince of this world. In John 13, he caused Judas to betray Christ. In Acts 5, he caused Ananias to lie. In 2 Corinthians 4, Satan blinds people spiritually. In Galatians 1, he proclaims a false gospel. In Ephesians 2, he indwells the unsaved. In Ephesians 6, he heads a celestial hierarchy of evil. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he hinders God's will in believers. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he works diabolical miracles. 
In 1 Timothy 4, he instigates false doctrine. In Revelation 2, he has a synagogue of legalists who deny God's grace. In Revelation 12, he is the deceiver. In Revelation 12, 9 and 22, he is the dragon, the old serpent. But let me tell you my favorite verse about Satan in the Bible. It comes from Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, and it says this. When he, Jesus, had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over him through Jesus. Our enemy is powerful, but we know one who is disarmed and defeated the enemy, and his name is Jesus Christ. This is the one that we proclaim here in this gathering today. This is the one that you live for tomorrow at 8 a.m. with your warm cup of coffee as you go to school or work or sleep in. His name is Jesus. He's defeated the enemy. The word of God is so clear on this. Everywhere you look, you see Jesus' life. You see that his purpose was to defeat the evil one. And in this, he succeeded. If you're still on your notes, you can see here six ways that Jesus has defeated Satan. One, Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and that meant Satan's head was crushed, as Genesis 3 talks about and prophesies. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he destroyed the works of Satan, First John tells us. When Jesus died and rose again, Satan's captives to sin, including you and me, were set free. When Jesus died and rose again, Satan's demons were disarmed. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, Satan's doom was guaranteed. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. This is the truth that we stand in. On June 6, 1944, there was a group of allied soldiers who stepped nervously, some ways innocently, onto the beaches of Normandy. On that day, as they claimed this territory... In a sense, World War II was won. As this invasion took place, the war was essentially over. If you ask World War II historians, they say, oh yeah, this was the date. This is where the whole game changed right here. June 6, 1944. But it was 349 days later when V-Day was declared victory day it was may 8 1945 almost a year later when victory was officially declared world war ii was done the axis powers had officially surrendered if you will we live our lives here in 2015 between d-day and v-day What I mean by that is that Jesus has defeated Satan. The cross of Christ has won. Satan is a wounded adversary. He's done. The jury has decided. He is convicted. It's over. And yet, 
This wounded adversary continues to poke us and bug us and bother us until we get to V-Day, which is when Christ will return and declare victory once and for all. So as we live in between, we know the ways that Satan gets to us. Again, pride and pity, lies. He tempts us with sexual immorality, confusing lust for love. He tempts us in his schemes to be driven by materialism. We did like a super in, like unscientific survey of, of our church. And do you know that 45% of us here at Calvary give less than $20 a month in tithes to church, to Calvary Church. We are so tempted as a people here at Calvary to hold on to our money, to keep it for our stuff, rather than to give it for kingdom purposes. Me included. It's one of Satan's schemes. We're tempted between D-Day and V-Day to be gossipers, slanderers, criticizers, judgers. We're tempted by Satan's lies to be self-entitled and selfish in our relationships with our spouses and our family and our friends and our neighbors and, and our co-workers. We're tempted in Satan's schemes to numb our real-life pain by self-medicating ourselves through drugs and alcohol and video games and Facebook and movies and music and just general laziness. We're tempted to be bad employees who bend the rules and cheat the system. We're tempted to hate others, holding grudges and bypassing forgiveness. As we live between D-Day, Christ's declaration that Satan is defeated, and V-Day, when Christ comes back and ultimately sends Satan into the abyss of hell. As we live in this in-between time, we are susceptible to the schemes of Satan. But here's what I want us to know. It boils down to this simple but beautiful point. Is that Jesus has won. He's won. And as we face the schemes of our adversary, we simply declare Jesus. Jesus, I'm not going to listen to this lie. Because you have victory over sin and death and the enemy's lies. And I will look to you, the author of of truth. We can take courage knowing that Jesus has overcome Satan and that we can look to him in every single moment of our lives. With that in mind, I want us to say out loud again 1 Peter 5. If you can see it, read it with me. This is what it says. Let's say it all together. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Stand firm in your faith. Faith in what? Jesus. We're going to respond to this truth. There's stations around the room. What you can do as we enter into worship through music is Walk up to one of the stations and take communion. Communion is the ultimate symbol that Jesus has victory. You take a piece of bread and a cup of juice. 
and you remember that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But he didn't stay in the grave. He rose again, conquering sin and overcoming death. Through communion, you remember that and you proclaim it until the next coming of Jesus Christ. There's also at the stations a place to just fight the schemes of the enemy when it comes to materialism. There's a place to give at the station to say, God, I choose to walk in truth and not just acquire more stuff, but be generous and give to kingdom work. And so you can give at the stations. And then we'll respond just through worship and music. So let this be our time of celebration, our time of declaration that Jesus is one. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are truth. God, may we be people who dwell and focus on you as truth and not fall into the lies of the enemy. Thank you, God, that we're in this room and none of us are defeated because we have the opportunity to look to you, the victorious one. In Christ's name, amen.